0: On New Year's Eve in 1964, a woman named Shirley Coleman was at home with her five children when she heard a knock at her farmhouse door. It was a husband and wife that Shirley had never met. They were clearly shaken up and asked to use her telephone to call the police. The couple described a grisly scene that they had discovered at a rest stop along Route 81, and the crime would haunt Jefferson County, New York for years to come. This is the story of the Egan Murders. I'm Ashton and welcome to The Haunted Corner. everyone welcome back to the haunted corner today we're discussing a case that as per usual i knew nothing about it happened in 1964 on new year's eve there's a book written about this case that i used as a source it's titled the jefferson county egan murders nightmare on new year's eve 1964 and it's written by dave champagne and daniel boyer The rest of the sources will be listed on the blog post and linked to in the show notes. So let's get into it. The story begins with two brothers named Peter and Gerald Egan. Peter was born in 1937 and Gerald was born in 1945, and they were pretty well known around Watertown, New York, but not in the way that you might hope to be known. The brothers were not well-liked. They were known thieves who worked together in their criminal activities. Peter, the oldest brother, had an arrest record dating back to 1951 when he was 13 years old and was charged in a car theft investigation. On one occasion, Peter was a suspect in a burglary and there was a warrant out for his arrest when on February 17th of 1957, he was hitchhiking and trying to make his way back from the West Coast back to Watertown. And as he was traveling through Nevada, the car he was riding in went off the road and crashed. Peter was ejected and broke both of his legs, his shoulder, and his back. He was hospitalized in Nevada for three weeks before traveling by train to Syracuse, and when he arrived back in Watertown and was examined at Mercy Hospital, they discovered that gangrene had developed and his left leg had to be amputated on March 11th of 1957. Because of his injury, the burglary charge was dropped, and Peter continued his escapades, using his brother Gerald in his planned crimes. Around this time, Peter met a woman named Barbara Vought. Barbara was described as adorable, smart, and athletic. She was a cheerleader in high school, played field hockey, and was also in the library club. She was popular and made friends easy. She was never in trouble, but all of that would change when she met Peter Egan. The two were introduced through friends at a YMCA dance in Watertown. Barbara had just graduated from Adams Center High School when she and she was working at a department store when she married Peter Egan on July 3rd of 1958. And according to friends, Barbara started to change when she was with Peter. She started drinking alcohol, smoking and picking up on even more of Peter's bad habits. The couple welcomed three sons within about three years of each other, beginning in 1959. The family home was not in the best shape. The boys were often filthy, and according to friends, Barbara really let herself go. In 1962, two Watertown police officers were on duty in the middle of the night when a car came out of nowhere headed directly at them. Fortunately, the car didn't hit them, and they then began a pursuit of the car, which was driven by a man at the time. The pursuit continued out of town north on Route 12 and about seven miles into the chase. Officers noticed that the man who was driving the car and his female companion had switched places and she was now driving the car. The pursuit went on for another almost 20 miles until a failed turn attempt resulted in the car crashing into a utility pole. No one was injured, and the driver and passenger were identified as Barbara Egan and her husband, Peter Egan. Inside the car, officers found a ton of merchandise, including wallets and spark plugs. The pair were arrested on reckless driving charges. Peter's license was suspended at the time, so he was also cited for driving without a license, and Barbara was charged with permitting the unlicensed operation of her car. This Bonnie and Clyde-like couple would continue to cause problems around town. They had to continuously move because they couldn't pay the rent. Barbara was caught shoplifting on several occasions, one of which involved her being detained for stealing one single right shoe. For her husband, Peter, of course. The shoplifting reputation got so bad that the Egan's weren't allowed in any of the stores in Watertown. Peter Egan was getting quite the reputation among the Watertown Police Department because of his growing record of arrests. Because of this, the Egan's were stopped by police on many occasions and things were getting a little spicy between the police and the Egan's. After a car accident in 1963, Peter Egan was found at the scene and claimed that he wasn't the driver and that the actual driver had run off. He also told police officers that he would shoot it out with police before going back to jail again. Peter and Barbara loved to play games in bars and would often flash money around and buy drinks for others despite being on public assistance. They always seemed to have money and were known to loan money to others. And then once after an investigation, they were were removed from public assistance in 1963. But despite this, they were once again evicted for non-payment of rent in November of 1964, and they left the house in a disgusting state. After this, Barbara, Peter, and their three sons moved just off the shores of Lake Ontario and settled into their new home, and immediately continued the same schemes that they had been known for for so long, performing a burglary of $1,000, which... Of course, enraged the victim, who was overheard saying, quote, Peter is a dead man if he doesn't return the money. The Eagans began associating with a local gang member named Joseph Leone, along with a longtime friend of his named James Pickett. They participated in several robberies together and had plans for a big one on the night of December 31st of 1964. A truck reportedly carrying a shipment of liquor valued at $16,000 was known to be scheduled to come up Route 81 and exit onto a state road and route to Canada. The plan was for the Eagans to drive up to the rest area where they'd help James Pickett hijack the truck and they'd be paid $1,000 for their help. So Peter and Gerald agreed to the plan. Around 4.45 p.m., Peter and Gerald went to the Rotary gas station where they met up with Joseph Leone, James Pickett, and another man named Paul. Peter invited Joseph Leone to join him and Barbara at the bowling alley after they had completed their mission for the evening, but Joseph declined. Around 6 o'clock p.m., Barbara arrived at the Rotary station, put some gas in her car, and picked up Peter and Gerald. They then proceeded to the brother's mother's home where they dropped off one of their children. They then dropped off the other two children with a babysitter. Barbara's car was leaking gas, so she had to put more, put more gas in her car around 7.30 at Green's Gas. While there, Gerald purchased two pairs of work gloves and a six-pack each of beer and Coke. Peter was seen at this time talking with someone near the gas station in a late model blue Chevy sedan. And this was the last time Peter his wife, Barbara, and his brother, Gerald, would be seen alive. A couple from Rochester, New York, named Bill and Beverly Jay, were heading to a family New Year's Eve gathering in Norwood, driving north on Interstate 81. Bill decided to pull over at a rest area before completing the remainder of their journey. This was around 9.20 p.m. Bill pulled their car up behind a blue 1955 Mercury station wagon that was parked without its lights on. As he got out of the car and made his way towards the grassy area, he noticed something on the ground of the passenger side of the car. As he got closer, he realized that what he was looking at was the body of a woman lying face down in the grass. Bill reached down to check on the woman but quickly noticed a pool of blood around her head and realized that she was beyond help at that point. Bill rushed around to the driver's side of the car, but he couldn't see inside the windows because they were fogged up. So he opened the door and he found two men also dead in the front seat and a small dog who was unharmed, but was covered in blood. Bill decided not to touch anything, which was smart. He closed the door, went back to his car and got in. He described the scene of horror that he had discovered to his wife, and they set off to find a telephone to call the police. But this was New Year's Eve. There weren't many places open, and the Jays struggled to find a place that would have a phone and also was still open that night. They finally came across a farmhouse at the corner of Routes 11 and 342. The home belonged to a woman named Shirley Coleman, who was home at the time with her five children. The couple explained what had happened and Shirley allowed them to come in and use the phone. When Bill got through to police, they advised him to come to the police station, which was just north of Watertown. Three state troopers were the first to arrive at the scene of the crime, and what they found caused them to call for backup. Which caused Lieutenant Thomas Nolte to end his New Year's party early, which would continue to be a pattern throughout the evening as all investigators and uniformed troopers in the area were called in. The three victims were quickly identified as Barbara Egan, her husband Peter, and his brother Gerald. Police believed that the shooters were backseat passengers in the car, and this would be supported by Dr. William W. Hall junior, who attended the crime scene on behalf of the acting county coroner, who was also the district attorney. Peter was found in the driver's seat. He had been shot twice in the back of the head with a twenty five caliber gun. Both bullets entered into his left ear, one exited through his right cheek, and the second exited through his right ear. Gerald had also been shot twice with a 25 caliber gun. One shot went into his right temple and lodged near his right eyebrow, and the other shot was through the back of his neck, and it exited through his eye. Barbara was found wearing green stretch pants, a dark green imitation suede coat, and one snow boot. Her hair was still up in curlers, and she had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber gun. Her body displayed signs of a struggle. Police believe that she attempted to run. She had scrapes, cuts, and a deep gash behind her right ear, possibly caused by a blow to the head. Three fingernail punctures were found on her wrist, leading officers to believe that she had been grabbed by her attacker. Police believe her attacker tackled her to the ground before before putting the shoe on the back of her neck and firing the gun into her head. The bullet entered through her left ear and exited through her right ear. The second gunshot grazed the top of her head. Her body was then dragged and left where it was found near the car. There were holes in the front windshield that were caused when Barbara fled and the attackers shot at her from the backseat of the car. The casings, the bullet casings found in the backseat would also support this. The time of death was initially estimated to be around 7.30 p.m. or shortly after. At the scene, investigators found Barbara Egan's purse, which had cash, makeup, and stamps inside. The men's wallets and money were also found at the scene, leading police to believe that this attack was not a case of a robbery gone wrong. Money didn't seem to be like the motive in this case. There wasn't any snowfall that evening, so there wasn't a second set of tire tracks to be found. Investigators believed that there were at least two gunmen involved in the attack. They also believed that it was possible that at least one of the attackers rode in the car with the Egan's to the rest stop. So the investigation quickly began with hopes that a motive would be uncovered. The massacre made headlines all over the United States and police searched for witnesses. But the only witness they currently had was the dog. And the dog couldn't tell them what had happened. The dog's name was Queenie, and she was taken in by Peter and Gerald's aunt after their murder. But just two weeks later, she was struck by a car and killed outside their home. Police would search for years for the murder weapons, but they would never be found. Bill and Beverly Jay were interviewed for hours by police. They weren't suspects, but police were hoping that they would be able to provide details that they may have remembered from the scene. And while they were being interviewed, news broadcasts started to come out about the murders. Bill and Beverly's children were staying with friends that night, and one of the friends saw one of the news broadcasts, which, which mentioned Bill and Beverly's names, and caused major confusion. Their friend misunderstood the broadcast and thought that Bill and Beverly had been murdered and rushed to tell the children what had happened to their parents. Of course, the children were distraught and rushed over to their grandmother's house, where they were reassured that their parents were fine and they would be home soon. After this event, though, Beverly believed that the murderers would come back for revenge against her and her husband. She suffered with nightmares for years and kept double locks on the doors until her death in 2009. Bill died of a heart attack in 1975 while serving in the Navy. A funeral was held for Barbara, Peter, and Gerald Egan on January 5th of 1965. James Pickett claimed he didn't take part in his initial role in the robbery, but he claims he knew right away that it was Joseph Leone who had killed the Eagans, and he may have had a motive. On December 20th of 1964, just a few days before the murders, a house belonging to Anthony Leone, who was the father of Joe Leone, was broken into. A diamond ring valued at several hundred dollars was stolen along with $760 in cash. There was no doubt for Joe Leone that it was the Egan brothers who had committed the robbery. The morning after the murders, James Pickett and Joe Leone along with Joe's girlfriend Beth Johnson had breakfast at the Red Moon Diner. Joe acted like it was the first he was hearing about the murders. But then a few days later, James and Joe met up at the diner again, and James claimed that Joe confessed to the murders quote, to keep them quiet, and he named an accomplice at that time as well, a man named Willard Belcher. Within the first month after the murders, police had interviewed at least 500 people and had narrowed down their list of potential suspects to James Pickett, Joe Leone, Willard Belcher, and Willard's wife, Bertha Belcher. But it would take a lot longer for anyone to be brought to trial. Police spent years waiting for someone to slip up and crack the case wide open, and they went to some pretty extreme lengths to make this happen. With the help of a locksmith, police broke into the home of Willard Willard and Bertha Belcher to plant a bug in the frame of their sofa. They then used an informant's home nearby to listen in on conversations, They heard lots of things, mostly Willard calling people rat bastards and Bertha talking to her clients. Bertha was a sex worker, so police often got an earful of sexual comments from Bertha, but what they didn't hear was anything that would link them or anyone to the murders. Several people who were interviewed in connection to the case agreed to take lie detector tests, one of whom was Joe Leone. After police let him know that they did not believe his account of his activities from that night, he, along with everyone else who took a polygraph test, passed, according to police. But as we know, they aren't the most reliable tests, and they certainly weren't in the 60s. When police searched the property where Barbara and Peter had been staying before they were murdered, they found a 38 Colt revolver hidden in the garage and a 32 caliber semi-automatic rifle hidden in the chicken coop. The handgun was not the one that was used in the murders. And the rifle had been stolen from Seaway Sports Shop and sold to Peter Egan for $15 by a man named Earl William Bennett. Bennett would later be convicted of a second-degree larcen- larceny. Another arrest was made for burglary involving a young man, barely 16 years old. His name was Dale Glenn, and he started spilling the beans about the Eagans and all of their crimes. He started dropping some names, and this is what led officers back to Willard Belcher, Bertha, James Pickett, and Joe Leone. Dale Glenn described the crime ring and how on some nights, the Eagans sent out two teams to burglarize different places. With his help, officers were able to put together a list of crimes that were committed by the Egan's in the seven months leading up to the murders. After this, though, the investigation into the Egan murders stalled for about 18 months. And that's when police had to jump into action and go off the only lead that they had. They arrested Willard Belcher on a charge of receiving stolen property after it became known that a half dollar coin had been stolen from Ray Dumas thirteen days before the murder on the day of the arrest. police searched the Belcher home where they found a forty five caliber pil- piston hidden in a bedroom. The weapon was determined not to be linked to the murders, but Willard and Bertha were charged with illegal possession of a firearm. The charges were eventually dropped on grounds of improper search and seizure methods, but the charge for receiving stolen property was upheld and Willard was sentenced to two and a half to three and a half years in prison. While police looked into the recordings of the Belcher home that they had obtained, they also consulted a psychic to assist in the investigation. And they spoke again to Dale Glenn. And this time he told them that they needed to speak to a man named James Pickett. And he would have information on who killed the Eagans, of course, so back comes James Pickett. So they brought him in and they questioned him about what he knew. Initially, he was not super cooperative with police. They claimed that he had, quote, used deception in preventing the state police from apprehending a person who has committed murder. He was arrested on March 23rd of 1968 at the Red Moon Diner on charges of first degree hindering prosecution. This arrest marked the first break in the case, and the district attorney, William McCluskey claimed it would be the first of many arrests to come. Joe Leon was the next to be picked up and brought in for an interview before being charged with murder. Bertha Belcher was arrested on the same afternoon and was charged with being an accessory to murder. Her husband was later the target of the next warrant, charging him with murder. But eventually it would become known that he would not be eligible for prosecution because he had been committed to a state hospital for the criminally insane at Dannemora. The charge against James Pickett was dropped after Joe Leone and Bertha Belcher were arrested. Bertha was later released on bond to await her day in court, but Joe Leone was not so lucky. Bail was set at $75,000, which was not something he could obtain, so he would spend the next 667 days in the county jail while he awaited his trial. Opening of proceedings for Joe Leone's trial was on January 5th of 1970. It had been 607 days since a grand jury had agreed with state police findings by indicting Joe Leone and only Joe Leone for the three murder counts. The indictment ex- excluded both Willard and Bertha Belcher from prosecution after it was determined that there was insufficient evidence to continue with charges against them. Joe Leon was represented by attorney Paul Shanahan, who almost immediately filed a motion to suppress evidence gained from statements that Joe Leon had made to state police during the early stages of the investigation and from wiretapping that police had done. The district attorney wanted to suppress evidence that would help the defense as well, including the lie detector test results. The judge granted the motions to suppress certain evidence, which would make it hard for... William McCluskey to prosecute Leon because a lot of what he had on him lied within those tapes. So the DA had to, in this case, plead with the court of appeals to consider the case. Eventually the path was cleared for a trial and the jury was selected. The trial also brought famed defense attorney F. Lee Bailey to Watertown as a witness for the people in support of lie detectors as evidence. In his opening statement, William McCluskey described how Barbara could have survived the attack, claiming that she had been run off by the attackers and then had returned to the scene before being murdered. During the trial, James Pickett took the stand and provided his detailed account of the events leading up to the murders and what he knew had happened after. He claimed that he had been recruited to play a role in the murder plot by driving the truck, carrying the liquor to the rest area but he had declined because he was expecting company that night for the holiday. He told the jury that a few weeks before the murder, Joe Leone told him that the Egan brothers had to die. He claimed that they had to be stopped before they were picked up and had snitched on everyone involved in their little theft ring. James also said that a few days after the murder, Joe Leon told him that he and Willard Belcher had murdered the Egan's. Now, this wasn't the only threat against the Eagans that had been made. They weren't well-liked, as I mentioned. A man named Joseph Ganowski had once threatened the brothers following a theft of cash from a safe at his pool hall. So there were many people who had it out for the Eagans. Now, also among the witnesses was William J. He told his version of events from that night describing the scene he had discovered at the rest stop. The state troopers who arrived on the scene first also described the scene in detail, along with other police officers who had visited the scene. The doctor who had performed the autopsies also testified on the stand, along with an unwilling witness, a former inmate who had shared a cell with Joe Leone. His name was Robert Edward Prey, and he initially refused to say anything. But after a weekend recess, he changed his tune and told the, chur- the jury that Joe Leone had confessed to him during a card game that he had killed all three of the Egan's. Then came time for Joe Leone to be questioned on the stand. On the day of the murders, he said he drove his girlfriend Beth Johnson's Comet to the Red Moon Diner around 8 a.m., She dropped him off and left there. Later on, he met up with the Egan brothers at the Rotary gas station, then went to the diner with Peter Egan and James Pickett before being driven home by his parents at 6 p.m. This information was contradicted by earlier statements that described how Joe Leon was seen leaving the gas station at 6 p.m. in his girlfriend's car. But he claimed that Beth started dinner when he got home and he cleaned himself up before leaving to buy a pint of whiskey and some cigarettes at a store. He said he returned home at around 7 p.m. where he stayed for the remainder of the evening. Now, during the trial, there were many forces at work. While court was adjourned, phone calls came into the houses of four of the jurors. A male's voice could be heard on the line saying, quote, if Joe Leone is found guilty, you are dead. The judge ultimately interviewed all of the jurors and determined that they had not been influenced by the threats made against them. Um so the jury was sent out to deliberate, and an hour and fifty-five minutes later, they returned their verdict. To each count of first-degree murder, the jury found Joe Leone not guilty, and he walked out of court a free man that day. James Pickett died in 2013, but his daughter has claimed that she believes that he may have lied about his involvement or lack thereof in the murders. Many people believe they know who committed the crime, but to this day, no one has been convicted in the murders of Barbara, Peter, and Gerald Egan. And that is the story of the Jefferson County Egan murders. I'd love to hear what you guys thought of this episode and what you think of this case. Who do you think murdered the Egans? Was it Joe Leone? Was it James Pickett? Or was it someone else? Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post, which will be linked to in the show notes and can also be found on the website at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and also on YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, with a new one dropping very soon, so watch out for that. If you support at the $5 per month level, you get early and ad-free access to these episodes, plus so much more. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, all the places. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen. That really helps me out. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to Corner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon. Bye.